African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. A very good uh, morning, it still is, and welcome to another interactive installment of African Dialogue. You tuned into Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, I'm your host, Asanda Mazzaunyane, and we will be uh, discussing topics this week. You'll actually be with me. Benjamin is not uh, in for this week, so I'll be taking the seat. And we're currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Today on our program, we will be discussing the Gender, Peace and Security and the UN Women Report launch that was released last week in Pretoria here in South Africa. And before we get to our topic. We're going to take the news, but also remember that we are on DSTV channel Audio Bouquet 902, and we're also on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Let's get the news uh, update now. Here's Joalani Tulo. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Asanda. Good morning. The South African Communist Party, SACP, has made an impassioned plea to the ANC to listen to Alliance Partners as it deals with the aftermath of the Constitutional Court ruling. The SACP says the ruling party should take decisive action against what it terms the continuing loss of moral authority and other challenges in the tripartite alliance. The SACP statements follow its political bureau meeting at the weekend. The meeting conducted an in-depth analysis of last week's Constitutional court judgment relating to the Nganja matter. The court found that the National Assembly and the President were inconsistent with the Constitution in the way they dealt with the Public Protectors Nganja report. SACP National Spokesperson Alex Mashilo. party says the constitutional court judgment and the evident popular acclamation it received from the widest array of South Africans should be a clear warning signal to the ANC, the tripartite alliance and to the ANC-led government. It warned that decisive action is now imperative or otherwise the continuing loss of moral authority, political paralysis and fragmentation of the movement will continue. For these reasons, the SACP says it will seek an urgent meeting with the officials of the ANC to discuss its concerns. The party has also welcomed President Zuma's public apology and is undertaking to ensure that the court judgment is implemented. Amos Power, SABC News, Johannesburg. Meanwhile, an extended meeting of the ruling ANC National Working Committee is to meet on Monday in Cape Town in the Western Cape. The meeting is also open to the party's National Executive Committee members. It is expected to reflect on the latest developments and challenges that the ANC is facing ahead of the local government elections. ANC Secretary General Gwere Mantashe earlier said that the extended NWC will present the party with a pool of leadership to deal with complex matters. 
The United States of America has raised concern on the decaying human rights situation in Burundi. U.S. Assist- Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy and Human Rights Tom Malinowski was speaking to the media in Bujumbura on Saturday. He expressed concern about serious human rights violations which continue to be reported in the country. Malinowski called on the government of Burundi to engage in an ex- inclusive dialogue instead of losing time in aggressive speeches. The government cannot say one thing to the international community and then a different thing to its own people. And so if the government is indeed committed to dialogue, it has to be delivering a message to its own people that is supportive of dialogue, denouncing everybody from the Catholic Church to civil society, to the media, to the opposition, to foreign countries as enemies of the people of Burundi is not going to get us to a successful dialogue. And it doesn't suggest sincerity on the part of the government. That kind of crazy, hateful speech needs to stop. Malawian clerics are now backing a bill aimed at preventing unsafe abortions. Over 700,000 women in that country seek backstreet unsafe abortions. Prophet Amos Chuma of the Faith of God Ministries expressed shock at the significant figure of women who are admitted to hospitals every year as a result of complications sustained during the procurement of unsafe abortions. Chuma added that he supports government's move to review the outdated abortion law so that women can access safe abortion services in public hospitals regardless of his church's status. This comes at a time when Malawi has drafted a termination of pregnancy bill which awaits Parliament's enactment. Grounds for pregnancy termination in the bill include rape, incest, fetus deformation and pregnancies that endanger women's lives or may cause mental or physical health complications. Currently, abortion is a crime punishable by up to 14 years in jail in Malawi. And finally, Zimbabwe's government insists that President Robert Mugabe wasn't dozing off in Japan but merely nodding his head in agreement. Information Minister Minister Christopher Moshoshwe, Moshoshwe rather, says in a statement the government was forced to react to malicious reports that the 92-year-old president had dropped off to sleep during a news conference with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Tokyo last week. A video clip of Mugabe closing his eyes while he listens to Abe pledge financial assistance has been widely circulated and reported in, on in Zimbabwe. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Desmond Tutu is a human rights defender and Nobel Prize winner from South Africa. He became world famous in the 1980s as an opponent of apartheid. During that time, Desmond Tutu was active as a bishop for the Anglican Church in South Africa. He was awarded the Nobel Prize of Peace in 1984 for his leading role in the movement to resolve the problems of apartheid. Now join Channel Africa from Monday to Friday at 900 hours Central African time when we bring you the radio series Desmond Tutu, The Authorized Portrait. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
This is African Dialogue here on Channel Africa. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to our show. And thanks to Jualani there for the news update. Remember that we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're also welcome to interact with us. Our Twitter handle, as I've mentioned before, is at Channel Africa 1. Or also you can find us on Facebook. You can also SMS your views to our number plus 27 Um, Asanda will be taking the the seat for Benjamin this entire week. And let's get into our topic. Now, 15 years ago, in October 2000, the United Nations Security Council adopted the historic resolution 1325 of 2000, drawing attention to the differential impact of armed conflict on women, their exclusion from conflict prevention and resolution, peacekeeping and peace building, and the inextricable links between gender equality and international peace and security. Since its adoption, insecurity and conflict has continued in all parts of the world and in recent years it is taking on new and increasingly challenging forms. It is against this backdrop that the Gender, Peace and Security Workshop and UN Women Report launch held on Thursday last week. To chat to us more about this, we're joined on the line now by Molly Lamini, who is Manager of External Stakeholder Relations. And uh, welcome to you, Molly. Thanks for chatting to us. Thank you for having me and my other colleagues. As I've mentioned uh, in the in the intro, there's uh, you know an increasing number of challenges. What are they, and why is it taking on new and you know different forms? What is what is the change in the challenges? Uh, well, the the challenges are that uh, the issues of peace and security continue to affect women. Uh, we find that in many countries where there's conflict women and children are the ones that are largely affected by the conflict. Uh, They are the ones that are assaulted uh, in many other ways, physically, sexually, and otherwise. And and we also find that there are few women that participate in in forums that promote peace. When there's conflict, peace building, they are not there on the table when it's time to discuss agreements, ceasefire agreements, and how to maintain peace. Now, the, the resolution of 15 years ago, what can you tell us about this resolution and what made it so important? Okay, what, what made this resolution to be important uh, is that it, it had to deal with issues of peace and security and gender. So in this resolution, the, the, the importance that was highlight, highlighted from it was that countries needed to have an action plan that was going to deal with these issues, in particular peace, gender insecurity. And, 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 well, many countries have begun to implement and many countries have begun to come up with a, a plan of action. And South Africa is also in the process of coming up with a, the plan of action. Uh, but at least there's been progress in terms of a, a countries like the DRC, for example, that has come with a plan of action. Uh, other countries are still coming up, and in Europe, countries like Norway have come up with a plan of action. So there is progress, 
but we, we need more now to, to ensure that it's happening. But what is good, for example, uh, South, South Africa and Namibia, South Afri- Namibia was the one that proposed it and it was supported uh, by South Africa. So because there has been worries that South Africa has not yet finalized its plan of action. Uh, so we can safely say at least uh, South Africa is, is still committed and at least now there is movement towards doing that. And let me bring Anne. Uh, we also joined on the line now by Anne uh, Gituku Shongwe, who's the UN Women Representative to South Africa, as well as Lavnes Nyaku Jara, who's a specialist on women, peace and security. Uh, we welcome both of you to our show. Thank you so much. And can you come into that point that Molly said about South Africa having supported this uh, program? What has the role of South Africa been? You know, besides, obviously, it's, it supported the, the initiative taken by Namibia to propose this. What other things are, you know, South Africa engaged in, in terms of implementing this? Well, first, I think the important thing to say is that this, uh, we just on Thursday uh, launched the global study um, on rethinking the priorities and how implementation should happen on um, women, peace and security. Uh, and South Africa played a, quite an instrumental role by actually contributing to the thinking behind it because South Africa actually had um, a couple of technical people who participated in the conversation, um, in the actual study itself. So in terms of a thought leader, uh, globally, South Africa is a, is a very strong um, contributor, and that's one of the, the you know, one of the big, big contributions. Um, I think the, the the important role that South Africa is playing, and one of the things that we have been doing as UN Women already in the South Africa context, is supporting the training and preparation of women peacekeepers in leadership, leadership positions. So we had last year a regional conference where we brought together women leader, women um, in leadership in, in peace from across the world, and they were basically here being trained to prepare so that they are able to go ahead and lead and ensure that peacekeeping is done in a way that recognizes um, the importance of, of, of the safety of all peacekeepers and ensuring that there's no forms of discrimination and abuse that are taking place within the peacekeeping ranks themselves. Um, and this is something that we're going to continue to grow um, as UN Women is to ensure that there's, there's very strong leadership in the peacekeeping um, processes itself. And speaking of that, uh, loveness, you know, women are still lagging behind in leadership uh, and did mention, you know, that there are steps being taken. But what, how do we change this, in your opinion, loveness? Yes, um, definitely we know that women are lagging behind in leadership position because the, just only 3% of women in peace keep involved in peacekeeping missions at the moment, that is, those are deployed by women. But um, in order to address this, we need that um, targets agreed to by government is training and support for women at every level so they can go up. Uh, we start cultivating the leadership. Um, in terms of um, what other, others have tried and done well to accelerate progress, it's to, do speci- to have special measures. This could be in the form of affirmative action. Uh, in some cases, they adopt quotas. And South Africa has proved successful in this regard. For example, you know that in post-1994, they had a quarter of the ruling party had a quarter of 30% women, um, and this succeeded, and this was elevated, I think, to 2007 to 50%. Because mm-hmm. of that deliver- deliberate policy, and as long as we're the ruling party, you could see that translating to numbers 
at various uh, levels, whether it's in cabinet, whether it's in uh, uh, in the civil service and other sections as well. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to discuss this. Uh, we're taking a break. Stay with us here on uh, Africa Dialogue. All right, thank you. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back to African Dialogue. We are tuned into Channel Africa. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani. I'm your host today. And uh, remember, you can also find us on uh, DSTV uh, Audio Bouquet Channel 902. Now, before we took the break, Molly, I want to bring you in. Loveness was talking about, you know, the fact that we are still lagging behind in leadership. And she put forward, you know, uh, certain uh, things that we can do to change this. She mentioned training. She mentioned support and, uh, you know, that uh, leadership can be cultivated. And then she brought in affirmative action. What do you think, uh, how, or let me say, how do we assess the progress that is made? How do we make sure that the, these, uh, you know, things that we put in place are actually, you know, resulting in something? What is the measure of the progress in terms of using these training, support, cultivating and affirmative action? For me, I think what is key is numbers, but numbers are also not enough. What is also key is 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 the impact. That's, those are the things I think we need to measure. We we need to measure how many women do we have uh, in these strategic positions of power, and uh, but after measuring that, we also need to measure what could be the impact because numbers are also not enough. And when we measure the impact, we, we need to, to see how it has translated into progress uh, from the recipients, from the women on the ground, the grassroots women, how, 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 how the position of these women uh, is, is impacting on the ordinary women. Because mm. the women in power wouldn't be there uh, for themselves but they should be there also to make sure that uh, they impact on ordinary women. They are, they are being in these positions, have an effect on ordinary women. And those ordinary women have to deal with the fact that rape has become a weapon of war a lot of times in, in conflict situations. Uh, Molly, what is your, uh, actually let me put in uh, Anne now, what is your take mm. on how we address this issue, the fact that rape has become a weapon uh, of war? Okay. Can I start with Anne? Okay. Oh yes, please. Go ahead, Anne. Yeah, I think the issue of rape um, as a weapon of war is a is an issue that we at UN Women are taking very, very, very seriously. Um, and so the measures that are that have been placed, of course, are on the one hand making sure that our troops um, themselves are tried and that they that they're trained and tried in the event that they actually are abusers in and of themselves. Um, and I think we had in this uh, uh, global study launch a very strong example in um, the DRC where 
there, there actually have been very, very specific um, cases where, where troops themselves have been actually call, called to the um, criminal courts to be able to actually uh, take responsibility for their role in, in, in rape in the middle of war. Um, so that's on the one hand. Obviously, on the other hand, it's looking at what are the protection measures for women um, uh, specifically during the war and how, you know, there's a very, very powerful example in, in, in Liberia during the, um, the conflict area where they developed what they called peace huts. And peace huts are essentially um, spaces where women would know that as they move from one area to, ne- to another in a, in a state of, 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 in a state of conflict, they would know that there are actually places, like places of shelter, where there is protection specifically for them, but also where in the event that a woman has been violated, there are places where they can actually go and at that place services are provided. So there are different types of initiatives that are in place to ensure that women can be, cap- can be safe within, within the within the uh, um, in, in context of, of, of conflict. But I think the most important thing is that every single government that participates um, and is, a, is a, a, a perpetrator of any form of, of, of war, of conflict, has, is also a signatory to uh, um, global clauses, global resolutions that insist on, on, on the protection of women. And so we actually, uh, even though it's difficult in the context of war, there are measures that are under place, under, under, that are in place, and the, the troops are ready. The different UN missions that are on the ground are actually uh, specifically called on to prioritize the protection mm-hmm. of women in, in a situation of conflict. We're talking gender, peace and security and the UN Women Report launch that was released last week in Pretoria uh, here on African Dialogue today. And can I just bring you in, Loveness, what type of uh, quality of human resources do we need to underpin our development aspirations? Moving away from the leadership and moving away from the rape now in terms of, you know, the, the actual logistics. Mm-hmm. Sorry, may you please come again? What type of, of uh, what type and quality of human resources do we need mm-hmm. to to underpin our development aspirations? Uh, I think in terms of the human resources, it is context specific and it depends on the situation that you're facing. What is very important is to ensure that we have a mixed team uh, that will ensure that. Um, there is both women and men in the teams. We have different competencies to deal with the different issues. And um, depending on what it is, uh, the, the human resources uh, should be suitable. So, for example, if it's around sexual violence and so forth, you need to be, ins- to, to be able to ensure that you are already prepared and it has been shown by research that uh, when you include women in teams, uh, women who have been violated are more forthcoming to bring their issues or to report uh, that they've been sexually abused or there's been harassment as well. In Burundi, for example, um, UN Women has been supporting a new nationwide network of women mediators. So there are about 516 women mediators um, who have addressed more than 5,000 local conflicts just in 2015 as a good, human, solid human resource. And a large number of these were related to uh, political crises as well as conflict. And um, these should be able to transcend beyond just the national pro- issues we are facing, but also to the local level. So our human resources should include, including religious figures, because we know that the conflicts are caused by many 
many uh, reasons. Sometimes it's religious, re- religious grounds. Sometimes it's uh, resource-based. Sometimes it is just politics. So we need to be able to respond to what is happening. And um, in terms of development, definitely they have to be trained for the particular situations that they are they are facing. Mm-hmm. And if it, if it is an indeed resource-based, uh, I want to bring in Showers, and welcome to our show, Showers Mawowa, who's Research, Development, and Coordination. Welcome to African Thank Dialogue. Uh, if it is in, in the case of that it's resource-based, how do we ensure steady financing for our significant needs for sustainable development in an increasingly uncertain global environment? bringing in the research as, uh, aspect to it. Yes, uh, thank you for that. Um, there is uh, important um, development that has taken place when it comes to financing for development, uh, particularly in the past year. Uh, we had the, the Addis Ababa Agenda, I mean Action Agenda, which was adopted in June 2015. And then we also have the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Goal number 17 is specific about financing for development. And there are quite a number of uh, cross-cutting um, points that come across in these two documents, which to some extent reflect uh, some of the lessons that have been learned in terms of financing for development. So just quickly, um, the first one has to do with domestic resource mobilization. How do we strengthen? Uh, mobilizing our own resources towards our own development. We know that the problem with the external financing has been that it comes with uh, conditionality, there is a problem of uncertainty, which speaks to issues of sustainability. So an important aspect would be strengthening domestic resource mobilization, improving our revenue collection, and also stemming the leakages around the illicit financial flows tech division, and so forth. Uh, private sector finance is also important, both domestic and international. Uh, international development cooperation is the third uh, key aspect. You know that um, the developed countries have committed to 0.8% of their GDP towards development aid for the developing and the least developed countries. So ensuring that uh, target is not is an important aspect in ensuring that they state finance uh, for, for development needs. Mm-hmm. Of course, the South-South cooperation reflected in the BRICS, uh, the idea of a BRICS bank speaks to uh, that kind of dimension, you know, as a, an important uh, contributor to development finance. Um, there is also the issue of international trade, which cannot be looked in isolation to development finance. Uh, how do you ensure that trade arrangements, you know, the WTO negotiations, are such that the playing field is even between the uh, different countries? Uh, the issue of debt sustainability has also been a long-running uh, issue that needs to be solved. Um, Again, to do with the terms of uh, debt uh, financing agreements that mm. need to be tightened and, and improved with the international financial institutions. Okay. Uh, the, the, the you know issue of interest attached to some of those loans uh, is important. 
And I think importantly is the role of science, technology, and innovation and capacity building um, yes. as, as a way to ensure steady financing as well. Okay, if you've just joined us here on African Dialogue, we're talking the United Nations Security Council uh, having adopted the historic resolution in 2000, which draws attention to the differential impact of armed conflict on on women and well as sustainable development around that. Molly, if you can just come in... Uh, uh, Shawas mentioned uh, goals. Now, inequality features prominently in the sustainable development go- uh, goals, including two standalone goals. And I want to discuss goal five uh, on gender equality and goal 10 on reducing inequality within and among countries. Can you tell us more about these two goals and how they can be overcome? Well, okay. Well, okay, I'll, st- I'll start with goal five. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and goal five is about achieving gender equality, and uh, it says achieve gender equality and empower women and girls. Mm. And, and and the important things that are under this goal are issues of uh, ending discrimination, violence against women and children, uh, eliminating harmful practices such as forced marriages and genital female genital mutilation. And, you know, it also covers the labor sector or rather um, yeah, labor, uh, unpaid care, domestic work, uh, participation in equal opportunities, uh, you know, sexual and reproductive health and, and economic rights for women uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, yeah, policies and legislation that promotes gender equality. And, and and for us, we think uh, achieving goal files will will need many things. It it would need policies and, and and practices. And and what is what is key would be to involve different stakeholders, ensure that the church is involved, ensure that the traditional authorities are involved, government is involved. You know, different uh, sectors of society are involved because uh, it's difficult for you as gov- for governments to to be able to pro- pro- promote gender equality without taking other stakeholders that are critical mm. uh, to participate yeah and 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 what would be key is is to recognize that the the issue of gender inequality is entrenched in our institutions and therefore it's it's important to to do it in a very systematic way uh, recognizing that, that these are entrenched in, in, in the structures of the state, they are entrenched, uh, patriarchy is entrenched almost everywhere, and it's therefore important to have a multifaceted approach when dealing with it, because everything is connected. Uh, the question of gender, like it was said in, in the workshop, one of the speakers in our workshop, Ambassador, Ambassador Tinjiwe, about the, the link ages between gender oppression, class oppression, um, and and uh, and uh, racial oppression. So it means you, you need to deal with the whole web of all forms of oppression when you deal with gender equality. Hmm. And with regards to goal ten, um, goal ten. Uh, talks about uh, reducing inequality within and among countries. And 
we, we, we know that we, you have your least developed countries, you have your developing countries, you have your first world countries. And, uh, but as much as we have differences um, amongst these different countries in terms of equality and inequality, you also have inequality growing within the countries. South Africa is one case, Brazil is one case where you have the highest levels of inequality in one country, where you have a first world and a third world country all in one country. And and and, and therefore, uh, it's important to, to really deal with these. Uh, but what what is critical for for for, for me is, is that going forward for developing countries to also develop certain things needs to change the, the historical political economy of these countries need to change. If developing countries used to export raw materials to mm-hmm. the metropolis, that needs to change so that uh, developing countries, for example, can be able to make finished products and sell to the third world countries. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, somehow, we might end up being able to balance the, the imbalances that are, are colonial uh, and, uh, and 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 Okay, now one cannot talk about the empowerment of women without touching on the Beijing platform for action. Loveness, can you just explain maybe to the listener who doesn't know what the Beijing platform for action entails? Um, Please may you come again? I can't really hear you. Um, the Beijing platform for action, we, we cannot ignore that uh, when we no. talk about the empowerment of women. Can you just touch on what that is for the listener who doesn't know? Yes, the Beijing platform for action is definitely important because it is the foundation and the and what what we've often dubbed the progressive blueprint for advancing women's rights. Since then, uh, government, civil society, and the public have translated the platform uh, for actions from into concrete changes um, in individual countries. For example, in South Africa, as part of the campaign launched during the 20th anniversary of Beijing, mm-hmm. uh, we committed to set it up for gender equality in many ways. Specifically, the government of South Africa committed to equity in the workplace by 2030, reducing HIV and AIDS, and ending violence against women. So we cannot talk about gender equality without referring to um, the, the platform or the declaration made 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you will know that the common person in the street, whenever you talk about gender equality, they'll say, oh, yeah, the women from Beijing, because I think it has been imprinted in, in people's minds that um, this is a, a piece, an instrument that many governments committed to. And um, it has progressive language that has stood the test of time even to this day. So, no, mm-hmm. we can't talk about gender equality without talking about the Beijing Platform for Action. And um, last year, as you may be aware, 2015 uh, was the 20th anniversary. So it's been in existence since um, 20 years ago. And, and yes, and what has been achieved uh, with the Beijing Platform? Do we see a difference in South Africa, for example? Yes, uh, I think uh, there is a difference, not just in South Africa. There are some indicators that have been achieved, particularly in the area of education. We have at least reached the milestone around uh, primary education. Uh, most countries 
have achieved universal primary education for both women and girls, HIV and AIDS. There is some progress in terms of leadership. Um, for example, in South Africa, uh, before 94, there was only 2.7% of women uh, representation in parliament. Currently, we have 41%. When it comes to ministerial level, it's already 47%. Um, mm. In the National Assembly, it's 41%. So where there's deliberate action and there's political will, we will see progressive steps. But there are some areas that still need attention, mm. of course, particularly peace and security, that it's not just, uh, uh, um, it's not just a, a, a male domain, but we need to ensure that women have an active role. Uh, women's empowerment, there is still work to be done uh, in terms of women's empowerment. Uh, there is some progress. We're starting to see it it's still at micro level. How do we get women into the macro, uh, to, to operate at a macro level? So we're not just um, confining them to spaza shops, small, uh, small businesses, but we need them to get into mainstream economics, whether it is in mining, whether it is in the financial sector, whether it is in IT, in other sectors that will uh, make a difference as well. And we shouldn't just count numbers. I think we're moving beyond just counting the beans and saying uh, we now have 10% to 20%. But what does participation mean? Is it effective? Is it bringing about change, not just to their lives, but to the nation? So those are the, some of the discussions we now need to, to have beyond the numbers. So mm. yes, there is progress and, and, and we can celebrate, but much, much more needs to be done. Shah, was uh, the much more that needs to be done? What about the young people getting involved? Are there opportunities for young people to come together and advocate for issues that affect them as well? Showers? Yes, um, I, I, I think so. Uh, in terms of advocacy, uh, there are opportunities that are there, but at the same time, uh, groups, and in this case, uh, with your question, uh, they also have to demand space. Um, in the work that we've been doing around the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, Gender, Peace and Security, we've been looking at um, the existing platforms that may provide those kind of opportunities. Um, one of which would be a platform like the Open Government Partnership. Uh, which has made strong commitments around peace and security, but also within the framework, uh, for the benefit of your listeners, the Open Partnership is uh, uh, an intergovernmental initiative that was uh, established in 2007 with South Africa, uh, I think, Nigeria, uh, Brazil, uh, among other eight countries as the founding countries. Mm. Uh, it looks at how to make the government more open, how to, uh, so it includes principles uh, like uh, public participation, uh, government responsiveness, transparency, and accountability in the way government do their businesses. And it requires, among other things, for government to involve uh, all stakeholders in coming up with national plans around development, around uh, economic empowerment and, and uh, public formulation problems. So there is an opportunity for the open government partnership for uh, young people to be involved. Uh, even if you look at the 
uh, AU Agenda 2063, mm-hmm. which includes the 10-year implementation plan. Uh, a lot of people do not realize that the Agenda 2063 actually requires government to set up national platforms uh, for monitoring and evaluation uh, of the implementation of commitment around Africa's development vision, which is synchronized with national development plans. And one of the requirements is the involvement of all stakeholders, and there is a particular emphasis on the young people in this framework. Uh, secondly, in the work that we are doing around the sustainable development goals, uh, we have made it a priority to involve the youth uh, as far as looking at the intersectionality between the sustainable development goals and the national youth policy, um, which is uh, planned until 2018. So there are opportunities for okay. uh, young people to be involved. Uh, when you talk of inequality, for example, you can't talk of inequality without um, mentioning the young people. We know that Africa is a challenge of youth unemployment, which is also uh, something that we find in our country in South Africa. Okay, let me pause so you uh, there. Let, let me pause you there. We'll be back. Uh, let's just take a quick, uh, quick break and then we'll give our closing re- remarks uh, right uh, after this. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today on African Dialogue, we discuss the United Nations Security Council adopted uh, the historic resolution of 1325, that was in 2000, which draws attention to the differential impact of armed conflict on women, also discussing the gender, peace and security, and the UN Women Report launch that was last week in Pretoria here, South Africa. Now, just in closing, and I need you all to just be brief so that everyone has a chance to, to say something, uh, you know, strengthening women's involvement in key decision-making, I'm coming back to the leadership issue, is critical to the advancement of women. What can be done or what, okay, I think we've discussed what can be done, but what movement now around, uh, you know, the different countries around this particular, you know, topic of key decision-making and women being in the positions of key decision-making uh, in the advancement of them themselves, what movements can be added on to what's already been done. Let me start with you, Anne, and I need everyone to just be brief. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, I think the point of movement is a very important one because um, the, 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 the challenge we've had with women in leadership and decision-making is that it's very dependent on a, a particular leader, so a president or a head of state in a particular country who decides that this is an initiative that he wants to really engage with. Um, but it is not consistent um, unless it is, one, legislated, but two, also there are champions all over the country uh, and who are mobilizing continually to make sure that women are in decision-making. I think that we have seen a country like Rwanda that is a huge, huge leader in this area 
where women are now at 60% leadership and under the leadership of President Kagame, not only is there uh, legislation and push from the leadership level, but they are also ensuring that this leadership translates at the local level, that it translates mm. um, in schools, it translates um, at the level of uh, civil society and community organizations in the okay. private sector. Um, and so I think the, the, the movement is to say the commitment is, is, is planet 50-50 yeah. by 2030. And so gender parity is not um, a luxury. It's an, it's an economic imperative. And that's one of, the, one of the things that we've been pushing. Okay, let me, let, me stop, let me stop you there. Sorry to cut you. Uh, Molly, what's your view? Uh, I'll be brief, but I just missed what uh, Madame Shongwe said. So forgive me if I repeat what she said. But That's fine. For me, I, I think what is key is, is just to ensure, you know, like I, I just want to use the phrase that was used last year when they were launching the agenda, 2030 agenda of the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, is no one behind. And for me, I think if no, no one behind, mm-hmm. it don't leave the men behind. Yes. And let's bring the men as well. Ashawas, what's your view? Just quickly in closing, <laughs> we're running out of time. Yes. Um, one of the things that came out of our recent workshop was uh, the call for a coordinator of sorts on gender digital security because there seems to be somewhat a lot of momentum around gender issues in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, progress has been made, but somewhere along the way, as one of the speakers noticed, I mean, observed uh, what went wrong. So they need some sort of, you know, competition to mm-hmm. generate that sort of momentum. I think for me, that's a big one. Okay, and Loveness, uh, finally? Sorry? Loveness, what's your view? Just in closing. Uh, sorry, uh, the line is a little bit Okay, okay. You know what? I think we're going to leave it there. We are out of time, unfortunately. This is a topic, you know, that I think it needs a whole week of discussion. But thank you so much for making time to chat to us. That was Molly Lamini, who's manager of external stakeholder relations, Loveness Nyakujara, specialist on women, peace and security for the UN Women, and Gituku Shongwe, who's UN Women representative to South Africa. And thank you to Shawas Mawowa, who's research, development and coordination. Thank you to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Much appreciated. Well, that's how we wrap up our African Dialogue installment for today. And uh, please be sure to stay tuned now for our economics news brought to you by Amanda Machaga. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Thank you, Asanda. Good morning. Zimbabwe's government has moved to compensate white commercial farmers. This follows 16 years of violent land acquisition in the country. Land in the hands of the white commercial farmers was acquired in order to redress the colonial land imbalances in 2000, resulting in nearly 4,000 white farmers losing land. Although the Commercial Farmers Union, predominantly white, then demanded compensation, the government reacted by enacting a law that disregarded title deeds. The union's chief executive officer, Olivia Hendricks, has this to say on the announcement.
So, Jerry, I hope that the government are sincere about the issues of compensation. Otherwise, we're just wasting time here. But for 16 years, this has been going on. And uh, I take heed of um, what uh, Minister Chinamasa said, that we've been for 18 years in the trenches, and it's now time to find a solution for our country and go forward. Government, farmers, new farmers, old farmers, we must now get together and talk so that we can resolve the issues. The 6th Annual Africa Sugar Conference held in Maputo, Mozambique, has come to an end. Delegates have been discussing a number of challenges facing sugar producers in Africa. The SADC region is the main supplier of sugar to Europe. Abangile Dumago reports. Delegates and representatives in the sugar production industry have spent the last week in Maputo deliberating on a number of issues. These include the drought that has hit countries in southern Africa and the bleak future for exports to European countries. Angry protesters have burned some equipment at the Marula Platinum Mine in South Africa's Limpopo province. They blockaded roads with various objects. The protesters are demanding employment opportunities from the mine. Shabulani Baloi reports. A ventilation shaft, bulk water pipe, pedestrian gate and security guard office have been burned down at the Marula Platinum Mine. Mine operations were also stopped due to protests last night. The workers were prevented from going to work as the roads were blockaded. Police and mine security have since removed the barricades. The situation is calm. I'm Chablani Baloyi, SABC News, Marula Platinum Mine, outside Begasford. Libya's National Oil Corporation says it is working with the UN-backed Unity Government to coordinate future oil sales. NOC Chairman Mustafa Sanala also welcomed the UN Security Council's renewal. The new government received the endorsement of the Petroleum Facilities Guard, a semi-official armed faction that controls key oil installations in the east, some of which it has shut down amid political disputes. And Kenya could become the first African country to tap global debt markets this year. Bond sales from sub-Saharan Africa, which had previously been booming, are yet to start in 2016 after a stormy start to the year. Despite the difficulties, some African euro bonds have been outperforming thanks in part to the bounce in oil and metals, but also on the back of some potential turnaround stories, something all investors love. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.66 to the South African rand, at 10.69 Botswana Pula, and at 10.89 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.70 to the British pound and at 0.87 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,217 and platinum at $952 an ounce. And the price of Brent crude oil is at $38.70 a barrel. That's all for now.
Good day, sports fans. I am Usibudi Makura with your latest sports news at the Sawa. FIFA is facing fresh embarrassment just six weeks after Gianni Infantino took over as president of World's Football Governing Body and pledged to clean up the crisis-hit organization. A key member of its ethics committee, Uruguayan lawyer Juan Pedro Damani, is being internally investigated for links with Ugueno Fegoredo, an alleged corrupt football official. Damani has acted in sensitive ethics cases involving leading football officials since July 2012, part of a huge trance of leaked documents suggests that Diamani and his firm provided legal assistance for at least seven offshore companies linked to Figueredo, a former FIFA vice president who was arrested last May in Zurich as part of the U.S. inquiry into football corruption. The Tunisian Football Federation has lifted a suspension on Hamdi Arbueo after the striker apologized to, or rather for his misconduct at the 2013 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. The 31-year-old was axed from the Carthage Eagles after he criticized the attitude of his teammates and the choice of coach Sami Trabelse following their group stage exit in South Africa. The Federation says the player could return to the national squad after he apologizes to the federal government and the country's football authority. The decision to recall Hamdi into the international fold will be at the discretion of the current coach, Henry Kasparak. Back home, the South African women's senior national team, Banyana Banyana, are back in camp to prepare for the upcoming back-to-back African Women's Championship qualifiers against Botswana, set for this weekend in Lobatsi. The squad departs on Tuesday morning. The return leg is set for the 12th of April at Makulung Stadium, east of Johannesburg. The Sassel-sponsored Banyana Banyana returned from Cameroon last week, where they played two international friendly matches with the host nation. Cameroon will host the 12th edition of the Africans Women's Championship Tournament from the 19th of November to the 3rd of December. On to cricket news, an emotional Darren Sammy, the captain of the West Indies T20 squad, launched a passionate outburst against the West Indies cricket board following his side historic World T20 title triumph over England in Kolkata on Sunday. Carlos Bothwaite hit four successive sixes in the last over as the West Indies stunned England with skipper Darren Sammy saying his side had lifted the trophy in spite of his country's board. The Caribbean teams and involvement in the tournament had been in doubt because of a dispute with the West Indies Cricket Board over pay before an 11th hour agreement was struck. We had a lot of issues. We felt disrespected by our board. The ability to just put all those adversity aside, you know, and to come out and display this type of cricket and play this type of cricket in front of uh, some such passionate fans, you know, it's just it's just tremendous. And uh, I personally also want to thank the coaching staff, Coach Phil. You know, he's been through a lot, you know, and to come here the way he's coached the team, you know, it's just brilliant. This win we dedicated to all the fans in the Caribbean. Meanwhile, England captain Ian Morgan took time to congratulate the West Indies. Um, first, I'd like to congratulate uh, Darren and his team. Um, today, they deserve the game. They played better than us. Um, but yeah, certainly today, huge highs and huge lows. No, never sure. Never sure. I thought probably on what was a really good batting surface, probably both sides, one of them lost it with the bat. 
Um, I think coming in at the halfway stage, we felt that with the character we had in the change room and the wicket taking options, we were certainly in the game. So there was plenty of belief there. And I think we put ourselves in a position to win the game. But today wasn't our day. At the same time, the West Indies cricket team claimed their first ever women's World T20 title with a pulsating eight-wicket win against Australia in Kolkata. West Indies captain Steffi, um, Steffi Taylor, who was also named player of the tournament for her 246 runs and eight wickets, says they played extremely well. I think it's fantastic to know that the men were actually behind us. I know... Sammy sent me a text this morning and he was like, Steph, you're going to do it. The girl's going to do it. So just back yourself. We believe. And I think that we did. You know, I've been waiting for this like a long time. And I think it actually come at the right time. You know, we played some fantastic cricket today. I mean, we didn't get the start that we wanted with the bowling, but... I think the batting actually did it for us. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.